Hey guys, welcome back to the Kaderna podcast. I'm Brian Kaderna. In today's episode, I'll be interviewing Scott Fulford as we discuss one of my favorite subjects, economics. If you're not familiar with the name, let me give you a quick background. Scott Fulford is a senior economist at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and author of the new book, The Pandemic Paradox, subtitle, How the COVID Crisis Made Americans More Financially Secure. Scott led the development of the Bureau's Making Ends Meet surveys. His wide-ranging policy and academic research examine the economic shocks people face and how they deal with them, as well as how economies grow and develop in the long term. Scott has a PhD in economics from Princeton University. In the next hour, we recap the economic reaction to COVID, repercussions in the ongoing battle against inflation, and a future outlook for what's in store next year. It's a broad-ranging conversation that I think can introduce anyone to the world of economics as we scan the globe and its shifting population dynamics, geopolitical issues, and sustainability. So whether you're brand new to economics or a PhD like Scott, there are plenty of takeaways in this one. Now my conversation with Scott Fulford. Is going to require work and time and sweat and toil. If money wasn't an issue, what would I be doing? Don't worry about it. You'll figure it out. Change is the only constant. The Kadena Podcast. Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. And I should say just yep. at the outset that I'm not representing the uh, CFPB at this time. Okay, fair enough. We will definitely all keep that full disclosure in mind. And uh, I mean, there's so many things we can go over right now. It seems as I'm airing this episode, as we're doing this this interview, it's December 14th of 2023, uh, for some of you that may be listening in the, the distant future. And where I'm sitting from, it, it looks like things are pretty good. You know, we've had a strong year in the stock market. Um, I think people are starting to kind of return to normal from all of the COVID mayhem. Uh, you're, you're seeing the reports that inflation seems to be at least somewhat under control versus where we were a year ago. So would you agree that there's a consensus right now that people should be feeling okay or comfortable? Well, I think it's always worth saying that not everybody is doing great, even in a good economy. But <laughs> the economy just overall is really great right now and really great in a sort of a surprising way. Uh, just to give a sense, it, well, it took us nearly 10 years to get to the employment rate uh, and to, to get to the same wealth rate after the Great Recession that uh, it took us nearly 10 years. And we've, we, we returned to trend growth in three years after, uh, after the COVID recession. And that's just tremendous. What do you what do you credit that to? Was it maybe not as as deep a shock as the Great Recession, or was the Fed quicker to jump in? Like, what what are some of the key takeaways there? Well, I, I think it was a combination of things. So, in th mm -hmm. that's always very much an economist answer. So, I should just admit that. <laughs> um, that uh, so first, it, the Great Recession was just a different kind of recession. It was it was a financial crisis, which just meant that a whole lot of things kind of got ground together. Whereas the COVID was really about kind of there's this really scary thing out there that we don't know how to deal with that is you know potentially life threatening, and so it was just a big economic stop that could then sort of uh, that then uh, we could restart from relatively quickly and so that mm -hmm. that was partly the difference but i think a general sense is that there was just a m very different policy response 
the Fed was paying attention. So kind of the financial jitters that were happening in March didn't turn into anything bigger. And yep. then the uh, Congress and uh, the federal government really stepped up and had just remarkably effective policy, which got money to nearly every small business, which got money to most households just directly, and which really kind of kept unemployed from having really big economic uh, consequences. And that made just a tremendous difference. It meant that people could just go right back to work as soon as they were sort of able to. Yep. And one of the questions I had regarding that, and, and I certainly have my own opinions on the matter, but I'd like to get your take. Do you think at that time they did too much? Because if we could almost just for the listeners kind of break up, we had the events of COVID, uh, of that shock, like we talked about, where it was kind of like an immediate downfall, but then almost an immediate rebound that was very short lived. But then we had this kind of aftershock of 2022 um, that were kind of recuperating from, if you will. Uh, so, you know, do you think that, you know, we were able to get through COVID so quickly, but then the symptom of that was the inflation that we've been dealing with the past year and a half? Um, what's some of your input on that? Yeah, well, again, I'm going to admit it's slightly complicated. And so let me divide things up just a bit. Uh, yeah, please. So I, I think uh, one of the things that I think we learned is that really good unemployment insurance is really valuable. Um, that just sort of that gets money directly to people who are likely to spend it, which is good in a macroeconomic sense. And it gets money to people who are kind of suffering or potentially suffering financially. And so that's just good in a sort of social security sense. Mm -hmm. uh, but we spent a lot on a lot of other things. Um, mm -hmm. So just to give the example, uh, we spent $800 billion giving money to nearly every small business. And it turns out that we could have had almost exactly the same effects with with uh, spending half that, am that, that amount. We gave a lot of money to nearly every individual sort of in March 2020 when it was really <laughs> unclear, but also in January 2021 and in March 2021. And in retrospect, maybe we didn't need to spend that money. Uh, and so what sort of how you balance those things, I think, is sort of important it, at the time. It wasn't obvious that we were that that was too much necessarily. I think mm -hmm. one of the values of sort of of writing a book like this is to sort of think through what were the really effective policies and what maybe didn't pass the muster, raise debt, but didn't make us uh, didn't make a big difference in terms of the economic recovery. Okay. And even if we can maybe stick there, like using March 2020 almost as like our launch point here of when COVID came ashore, mm -hmm. you know, kind of rocked everybody. And we said, oh, my gosh, what are we dealing with? Again, the, the title of your book, The Pandemic Paradox, and I like the subtitle, How the COVID Crisis Made Americans More Financially Secure. So what are some things that, that maybe if you were sitting you know, in the Fed seat or the Treasury seat and said, okay, I've got kind of the levers to pull here, hindsight's always twenty twenty. what are maybe some just simple things for the layman that, that you would have said, I would definitely would have done this differently? And this, I, I applaud them for because this is what we needed. Are there a couple kind of like from a, that bird's eye view that we could take away? Yeah. So I, I mentioned unemployment insurance, and I'm just going to sort of, I, I know that sounds like kind of harping on that again and again, but <laughs> the United States has a really weirdly developed unemployment insurance system, which is mostly run by states, but sort of the federal government then kicks in some money. Uh, and the, the, the big thing that we did in March 2020 was really just expand that un unemployment insurance 
which meant that for a lot of people, the 22 million people who lost their jobs over that month from March to April, it wasn't really a big deal. It wasn't nearly as big a deal as it could. And just acknowledging that there were some problems with getting money to people uh, sort of on time. Uh, mm -hmm. But that was a COVID policy. And it, there's no real reason why we sort of can't have a good unemployment insurance system uh, that, isn't, that isn't only a COVID policy. Uh, other things were sort of it's less obvious. And I think that that so that so having a good unemployment insurance system is good. I think the mm -hmm. Fed pulled out tools that it had developed in the Great Recession and in, in the financial crisis. Uh, it was able to kind of pull those out and stabilize markets really pretty effectively. So that was really a success. Mm -hmm. uh, on the flip side, it really isn't clear that we should have done nearly as much for sort of small businesses uh, and I, uh, or given quite as much money just to everybody just as a stimulus uh, as what, what we're end up being calling, called stimulus checks. Okay. So you think maybe like that third stimulus, that wasn't necessary? I, I Again, I want to be a little cautious, but I mean, I, yeah. I, think, I think in retrospect, it, it ended up being a lot of money that, that was not quite as important as it was. It, as the earlier checks were, uh, I think in March 2020, things looked like they were falling apart. And so yep. it's very hard to be critical in March 2020. Uh, later on, that plus money to state and local governments may not have been quite as valuable. Um, and uh, how much it contributed to inflation, I think, is still a an ongoing question. So, Okay. And do you think, I mean, that there's a kind of a clear and present danger of the unemployment, the stimulus, any of these, some of that government assistance, when it begins to get politicized. Because if we go back to 2020, if you recall, I mean, we were right in the midst of this, this big election battle. And it seemed like as we were getting near the end of the year, it was almost like who you're here in the Trump camp, you're here in the Biden camp, almost who can give out more stimulus, we're going to get you more money, we're going to get you quicker money, we're going to try and prolong the uninsurance, the enhanced unemployment benefits. Um, you know, it, it was like they were kind of jockeying for who is almost giving more. At a, and it seems weird when you're t talking about two polar opposites of Democrat and Republican, but they were both on that of like, we don't want to let anybody down right now. I think that's where it, it can get scary because if you, if it's ever done for political motive, then that takes away from the economic motive. Um, it, but is there any way really to kind of corral that to make sure that there's not any almost, I don't want to say abuse of it, but it, that it's not used in the most economical sense mm -hmm. because we have that political kind of rhetoric or agenda behind it? Well, I, 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 it, it sounds weird. I'm going to say unemployment insurance again, but I know that sounds kind of the, the value of that is what um, economists call an automatic stabilizer. So what that okay. means is that part of the reason, in a macro sense, that you get, <laughs> that you do what we were calling stimulus checks or, or economic impact payments is the idea that sort of okay, the economy is doing less well than it should. We want to stimulate demand, get people out there spending. So let's send some money to people and then they'll spend it and their spending will be cut on people's income and that'll kind of stimulate the economy. And so you want to do that when things aren't going as well. Well, mm -hmm. the nice thing about unemployment insurance is it sort of does that automatically because it's sending money to people who otherwise might have less money and might spend less. And you can kind of, and that happens automatically because if unemployment goes up, people automatically apply for unemployment insurance. You don't have to worry about kind of passing a bill and uh, so just to give an example, in March 2020, there were real concerns that elderly senators, which is most senators, well, this is a COVID was a really dangerous thing. And if one of them came down with it, 
uh, would they be able to pass bills uh, was a real concern. Uh, and so sort of partly by sort of taking out the political, you can make it, you can make sure that there's sort of the, that the right kind of money is going at the right time to really help the economy. Um, so, so if, but that's, oh, good, please. No, I was just going to kind of, uh, you know, if I could almost paraphrase just to make sure I'm following you, do you feel like you're a, a bigger fan or proponent of just a stable unemployment insurance program versus having to lean on maybe sporadic kind of stimulus payments? Yes, de uh, definitely. That, that having, having a, uh, an unemployment insurance system that gets more money to people who are unemployed so that kind of there's a, uh, uh, it helps with macroeconomic things as well. It doesn't just mean that sort of people who are unemployed are having fewer problems. It means that when there is a bigger macroeconomic event, there's money that's going to go out the door automatically. You don't have to wait for an election. You don't have to sort of balance political needs. And so it, it, it helps stabilize. That's that automatic stabilizer part of the, uh, part of the economy. Uh, okay. fact, there actually are proposals to make it even more pro-cyclical. So like the un unemployment insurance would get more generous or would go for longer as unemployment rises in some sort of automatic sense. Uh, that's more complicated. I just want to, I, I think it would just be better if it was just a more, somewhat more generous system, which is yep. sort of what the economics suggest it should be. Okay. And I, the only fear I have with kind of that, where it's attached to kind of the cycles is when you look at, you know, it's almost kind of like uh, the counterintuitive a little bit when you think the unemployment goes up, then that's not good for the economy. The government has then less, less tax revenue coming in. And now they're on the hook to be paying more and more mm. out at that same time, where it's uh, almost like a double-edged sword of sorts. There's so many different things I know that, that we can really dive down some of these rabbit holes, um, but maybe just to kind of hit rewind just a touch. So one of the first things I think any anyone's taught in Economics 101 is that concept of moral hazard, of we want to do something for a righteous cause, to, certainly to protect the unemployed or people that to no fault of their own are a victim of a pandemic. But then there, of course, is that, you know, that tipping point where it takes away some of that incentive to compete, to go hustle, to find work, to fight for mm -hmm. your position. When you say I have a nice safety net here, when, what are some of your thoughts? Cause I, I see exactly what you're saying that relying more on unemployment could be a little more stable and predictable than, you know, getting this political toy of stimulus that we can kind of throw uh, without as much um, kind of caution. What, I mean, what's your take on the moral hazard and unemployment? And, and again, how would you kind of communicate that to the public to be able to balance that appropriately? Well, so first, I think you're exactly right that you always sort of, sort of there's a balance to many things. So, and just to give an example, which I think is actually a very real one to many people, uh, the unemployment insurance that was done in the CARES Act was just because of sort of, because our system is just not very well designed, was too much in many ways. So what it, what it did is it actually replaced more than lost income for many of the people who had lost their jobs. Exactly. And that's, yep. and that's, that's problematic. I mean, part, partly it was unfair in a, in a general sense that, you know, if you're a uh, essential worker working in a grocery store uh, and you're not earning a lot of money and you would be better off had you been fired, that's, that's just not a, that's not a, that's not a good system. 
that didn't last for very long. And the reason it was designed that way was largely that they couldn't do, that state systems couldn't do a kind of proportion of income lost. So they had to just give approximately $600 to everybody. And so it was sort of, it, it was because it was being designed so quickly and because the state systems couldn't handle it. Mm -hmm. So it, 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 it wasn't that it, that it couldn't have been better. It was more that it, that it couldn't have been better and get passed in uh, 15 days. That quickly. Uh, but I think there's a general sense that, that moral hazard that we, we want people to go out and find a job. We don't want them to uh, to sort of use unemployment insurance forever. And so you want to balance the encouragement to go find a job with uh, the value of both protecting their financial situation so that they can go find out the right find the right job for them. And also just protecting, say, their children and their ability to eat and sort of general sort of financial well-being. And finding the right balance for that is always a little hard. Uh, there's a fair amount of economic research that goes into that. Uh, and I think the general conclusion is that uh, the United States sort of has too little unemployment insurance. We wouldn't want 100% unemployment insurance because that would take away the incentives. And so mm -hmm. someplace between where the United States is, most states are, are at about 50% replacement. Someplace between that and 100% is probably better. Uh, exactly where the line is depends on how much you think, how hard you think people work to find a job. If, how, if you give them more unemployment insurance, replace more of their income, how hard they're going to go out and work. And mm -hmm. there are disagreements on sort of exactly where that is. But the, the general thought is that sort of someplace closer to the middle is probably a better place. And I don't know if this was your, you know, any of your research or some of the surveys that you were conducting during this time. But are you aware of kind of how we stack up versus some other, uh, you know, countries and major players as far as what their reaction was, and then also maybe what their rebound was in comparison to us here in the States? Yeah. Well, so in, in some senses, that really does point out that the combination of things, admitting that we may have spent too much and that not all of it was as valuable, at least in the United States, ended up being the combination ended up being a really good set of things. Uh, the United States has rebounded much more quickly than other comparable countries. Uh, so the, in Europe or in Canada, uh, we have, as I said, I think a little earlier, we've returned to trend growth. So it's as if kind of if you look around at the economy sort of right now, employment rate, the employment rate is back to where it was in 2019. GDP is back to where it would have been had the economy kept on growing at the rate it had been for the previous 10 years. It's sort of as if COVID in an a big economic sense didn't happen. And that's really unique. Uh, other countries haven't had that experience. Uh, and a lot of that looks to be partly a result of policy. Although Europe in particular had a big, uh, a, a huge supply side crisis uh, when uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. Uh, and so that that's partly a pulling out the things that make countries different always requires a little bit of thinking about, well, Maybe Europe would have had a different experience had it yeah. not had a had energy prices not uh, gone up as much as they did. In to elaborate on that point, because I think when most people say we want to compare the U.S. to someone, the immediate response is China. That that there's only two real superpowers right now. You've got America. You've got China. China handled things a lot differently, <laughs> maybe than we did. Very different country, but. Uh, maybe if you can give us some insight on what's going on over there. <laughs> oh, well, 
I, I I'm not sure if my insights are particularly good on China, but China's uh, China's COVID experience was let's just say not a great one. Uh, the zero COVID policies which existed sort of well into 2021 and even into 2022 were really hard, both on a social level, but also on an economic level for China. Uh, and uh, I, I think kind of one of the things that sort of, it, just to give an example, it's no longer obvious that China will have a bigger economy than the United States, despite having such a much larger population. Whereas if you ask that same, same, same question in 2019, uh, everybody was said, oh, China's going to be the dominant economic player. And the and it is still a very large economy, but the combination of just slowing growth, aging population, and its COVID, its combination of COVID responses has really set China back in substantial ways. And what do you think, like, the, maybe the leader is there? What, you mentioned three possible causes, you know, their aging population um, and, and their COVID response. What do you think is kind of the, the big change where it does seem that China was just having since the 90s, 2000s, kind of this rocket like growth? Mm -hmm. And now it's it's almost like they're coming back down to earth where um, they're they're not growing that quickly. And they might be, you know, if you could point to something, whether it's political or the aging population, like you've said, you know, or COVID, which, again, that was kind of a small fraction in time or, or moment in time, but it was a big impact. Uh, what would you point to? Well, so uh, development economists, those are economists who think about kind of how economies develop, particularly poor ones, mm -hmm. uh, have what's called the uh, middle income trap, is I think kind of the is the sort of general uh, uh, thing that it's called, which is that it's actually quite hard. It's relatively easy. Not not everybody does it, but it's relatively easy to go from being a really poor country to middle income country, largely because when you're a really poor country, you've got a lot of people who are very poor and really work for low wages. And so it's just not that hard to invest in some factories and get a lot of people working and earning higher wages and sort of moving up the scale that way. Uh, and so there are lots of countries that have done that fairly successfully. It's a lot harder than go from middle income to high to a high income country because that requires a different kind of thing. It's not just catch-up growth. It's not just doing what other people have done just with low wages. It requires actually inventing your own stuff, having a consumer economy, having institutions that can cause uh, investment to go to the right places where it's going to be really where it's going to be really valuable. And that's a harder thing. And so, for example, you've seen lots of Latin American countries stall out at kind of middle income. Some have managed to make it higher, some have not. Uh, that's true for many other countries. And what, what I think what we may be seeing is that China was really benefiting from that kind of catch-up growth. It was benefiting from a very young population for many years. And those two things together can cause really high economic growth. And I should say, that's exciting. That The poverty reduction, the amount, the amount of people who've been brought out of poverty by China's growth over the last 30 years is just tremendous and is exciting for anybody who cares about sort of humanity as a whole. But I think kind of China is also reaching the point where, where those things aren't sufficient. They've caught up in terms of technology. I mean, they're sort of at the frontier in some sense. Uh, they don't want, they no longer have the young, the, the young population. Now it's an aging population. And now they've got to figure out the institutions to make that happen. And that's harder when you don't have a system where capital moves freely, where uh, people, where people's representatives can be responsive, responsive to them. Uh, that requires different kinds of institutions. 
Yeah, some great points there. And I know there are, there's a lot of, you know, stark differences between the US and the way we do things in China. But I think there's also a lot of things that are similar, a lot of parallels there. Would What's your take on, on the aging issue? Because I, I know in my book, I, I talk quite a bit about kind of population dynamics. And it's something that as I researched more and more, it's almost hard not to get a little bit scared about what's going on with just population. Um, you know, we may not have as much to contend with as China. They're gigantic compared to us. Uh, but are we still, are we facing a similar aging dynamic that is difficult? Like what, if you can give us the pro and the con of what the future holds or what people might want to anticipate, you put on your economist hat, you know, what would you say? Uh, well, okay. So I think first, just China has it in many ways, just uh, it, it's going to be much more complicated in China because it had a very rapidly growing population and then very rapidly put a sort of limited that. And so there's just a big economic, there's a big population uh, sort of bulge that is working its way through the Chinese system, which is still in its working years, but will not be in its working years. And so that uh, the term that the economists use for that is the dependency ratio, which is sort of the number of workers compared to the number of people who are retired or in children. And so China right now has a pretty good dependency ratio and has had an increasing one and has a lot of a lot of people working, but that's going to shift as the, as that population ages. And the hard part about that is that effectively kind of an economy is who is producing work, who is producing right now. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's going to then go to people who aren't working, people who are retired or, or, uh, or children. And so the workers right now need to support everybody else. And so the number of worker, the, the number of workers, that dependency ratio really affects uh, everything else. So China has, has a really, it, it ha and you can predict these things fairly far out because populations tend to age predictably. Uh, yeah. Everybody gets a year older unless they die. And that's the whole, <laughs> we, uh, we hope that doesn't happen. Um, so China's, so China, you can just see this population bulge and this sort of dependency ratio problem coming. The United States will also have one of those. Uh, it's going to be much less, partly because the United States has not had nearly the same kind of increase in population, but then rapid decrease in, in population growth rate. But we're still going to have one. We're going to have an aging population, largely because uh, people are having fewer children. And so as population growth declines, there are going to be fewer workers to support the number of people who are no longer working, re retired. Uh, and some of that's just because the people who are retired are living longer, and so there are just more of them. Uh, and when I say support, that's kind of a complicated thing because people who <laughs> retired have saved. But in an economic sense, it's the GDP that's produced in a given year that's supporting them, that, they are, that their savings are buying the things that are being produced. And so those relationships mean that, they're just, that there's going to be kind of this general uh, pushdown in overall economic growth because there are going to be fewer and fewer people make it, to make fewer and fewer people, uh, a smaller percentage of the population. I want to be a little clear here that it's percentage of the population, not slightly total, that's going to support the entire economy. Uh, to make even to go even further, and I'm sorry, I know I've been uh, monologuing no, for a no, moment. No, no, please. Um, Italy, for example, but other other European countries where uh, effectively, kind of one child 
having one or zero children has become the norm is going to have even larger problems. They've got a very strongly aging population. And has been part of the reason it's been having a hard uh, last 20 years is because of that overall those overall demographic trends. Please excuse this brief interruption, as I'd like to remind everyone to go check out my new book, What Should I Do With My Money? Subtitle, Economic Insights to Build Wealth Amid Chaos. In it, I explore nine economic domains, ranging from population dynamics to education, environment, war, religion, and much more, all through storytelling and insights that stem from years of research. It's available in Kindle, audiobook, and paperback, wherever books are sold. Now back to my conversation with Scott. When I have a question from, from the economic standpoint as you do these surveys and this research, and they, they say those things like, oh, this generation is, is only having one child, or some, I love when they say like 1.5 children. <laughs> but <laughs> when they quote that, are they taking into an account that parents age? Because I know also, you know, back in the day, it was, oh, you had three kids and you did it by the time you were 26 years old. Now you could say, oh, this person's 37 and they don't have any children. But that's not to say that between 38 and 43, they won't have three kids. What, like, do they look at that when they come up with that statistic? Uh, it depends on the statistic. So that, that, that is a great question. And it, it gets really to the heart of, it depends on the exact thing you're looking at. Um, but generally kind of the, the, the measures that sort of people look at sort of account for the sort of the full, the full cycle, um, sort of, and, and one way you can say is that sort of, uh, there's a certain point where women generally can't have children anymore. And so if you look at sort of the fertility rate up through age, say 45, you can get a pretty good sense of, okay, well, this is the, this is the number of children that woman is going to have. Uh, mm -hmm. And you can then do projections and sort of figure out kind of what is the average rate. Sometimes that's done. Sometimes it's not. It depends on how you're correcting for it, because you can already tell by the way I'm describing it, that this requires a little bit more than just simply saying, oh, well, this family has this, this number of children and averaging that out. Uh, and so demographers are pretty good at this. Uh, but even they've been surprised that uh, the declining fertility rate, the declining number of women that each child uh, children that each woman has has surprised even many demographers that that has declined much more quickly in India and in many African countries uh, than many than many people were predicting. Uh, and that's exactly for that same problem that you can see, okay, how many children does this person have when she's 19 or 20? And then you're sort of projecting out for the next 10 years. And it turns out that she's that uh, she's likely to have fewer than you thought based on what you were observing when she was 19. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, there are lots of different pieces that go into that. One is the delayed fertility, uh, that sort of if you're 37, you're probably not going to have six kids. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's just sort of part of the way in which they can kind of tell how many, how many fewer children per, yeah, children per woman uh, are going to happen. Okay. And, and I know we're kind of painting a, a very broad landscape here, which I think is good. And then I want to bring it back to, to kind of COVID and where we are going forward. But just to, to maybe round that out or kind of put a bow on it. So we have this, this I don't want to say fertility crisis, but I have heard that term thrown around out there that we're just, we're not having enough kids. Um, a lot of the research I did before I came out with my book 
just showed that like one of these kind of secret weapons, this X factor of the U.S. has been our immigration, that, that mm -hmm. we are almost a brain drain on like the rest of the world. And so we're able to constantly innovate and, and keep up with this growth. Um, but not every country has that luxury. What's like your take? Like is, I guess what I'm asking is like, has this happened before in history that we've seen this aging and then kind of a, a big stop where you said kind of, there was like that bulge in the working economy but then the one-child policy or whatever it may be, we, we kind of slowed that down. Like, have we experienced this before where now it seems like there's not going to be enough horses to pull the cart? And what do we do after that? Like, what, what does kind of the next phase look like? Well, so I, I think, yeah, so let me be, I, I think, sorry, I want to structure this in several ways. And I'm sorry if I'm, uh, so one of the one of the places to look uh is the post world war 1 uh kind of economies in europe uh, where there was effectively an entire generation of men who died in the trenches uh in france um and the looking at kind of europe so england in particular over the 1920s it is really a scary sort of that, that demographic of who was left and who was trying to kind of make the economy work meant a very different, uh, a very different economy. Mm -hmm. I, we haven't, there have been specific countries that have gone through various demographic transitions. What we haven't seen is quite the same effectively declining population. Uh, that, that's a, that's a new thing. And what I mean by that is you can sort of project out if, if you, if most people have one to two kids, <clears throat> not two to three, that's below what's called replacement level. And it means that at some point, the economy is going to start declining. And it takes a while for that to happen. Uh, and the United States, because of our immigration, because immigration has been uh, quite large relative to other countries, won't really have that for quite a while. Other countries are already experiencing it. And a, a decline in, po in population. Yeah, that decline in population. It, and part of that's going to be accompanied by, by an increase in the dependency ratio, that more people... Uh, more people who aren't working being supported by fewer people who are. Uh, that's an, th those are in some senses really new economic things in the world. We uh, in the past we either had a stable population for the most part, or a growing one as the economies grew, and that's exciting. And that's what's been happening over the last two centuries. A declining population and a, and a really rising dependency ratio is going to create some really new economic problems. That I think we're going to have to really think hard as a society as societies about how to deal with yeah and i i don't think you know at least in anything that we have record of that that's almost ever happened in history like if you look at a population chart of global population it's just kind of this steady thing and then it goes like straight up like a rocket and now here we are at whatever approaching eight billion people you're saying that eventually we could get to where then it starts to tip and go the other way I don't think that's ever happened before. Uh, I, at least not to my knowledge, or at least to, uh, to, to a place where it's been well enough studied that I think people really understand. There have been some countries which are, are further along in that. And so mm -hmm. I think we'll be looking to them. I've mentioned Italy. I think Japan has also been sort of a lot further along on that path. Uh, and so, but neither of those are great examples over the last 20 years of what happens when you when your population sort of starts to stabilize and go down and there are more older people who aren't working 
uh, both mm -hmm. of those suggest that economic growth will sort of decline in many ways. So if I, and again, I'm not, if you're not an expert in this exact domain, that's fine. You know, you can let us know, but I, I really liked your reference to looking back to World War One, where in some of these European countries, like you mentioned, England just had so much of their future workforce and these young men were just erased because of the war. But at that time, I mean, it, did these economies have the type of entitlement system where, where there was just such enormous government and, and programs that were all banking on all these young people are going to be able to keep it going and be able to contribute to this for 30, 40 years. When that was removed, I mean, is there kind of like a parallel versus today where if that were to happen, I, I couldn't even fathom what we would be saying about Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, et cetera. Um, and maybe this is a way that we can bring it all the way back to the, the unemployment <laughs> um, as like our common ground. But was there anything like that back at that time where, for instance, all their parents or grandparents of the late 1800s said, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do now? Well, so I think it's worth just sort of uh, the economies looked very different. Uh, and I, I'm not an expert in, say, 1920s British economy. So I want to apologize to anyone who is. Um, but it, my understanding is that many of the changes that happened that created the sort of social welfare state actually did take place in the 1920s, and 1930s, partly because there was this realization that you couldn't just depend on your son taking care of who had been who was going to take over the farm for you taking care of you when you were old because your son had died in France and so you had <laughs> aging farmers who were going to need to be taken care of and their mothers were going to and, and so there there really was this realization that because of this of the great war uh, society really had to take more responsibility than it had than it had for kind of its members that was also the time of the suffragettes and and the and the and bringing women in to vote. And so I think kind of there there were other changes that were occurring as well that kind of broadened sort of who could work and whose whose contributions were valued. Uh, which is all which is all a complicated way of saying that uh, we can adapt. Uh, I think in some senses bringing this back to COVID. COVID showed us that we can do some really crazy things. Everybody can work from home uh, suddenly. True. Uh, not that every not mentioning that there were essential workers, so acknowledging that, but mm -hmm. uh, the the sense that sort of that a huge fraction of our workforce suddenly started working from home and figuring it out, that just as a transformation of how work is done, we can figure out ways to do things. And I, I think in some senses, being optimistic about it, uh, even against the trend which is going to be a complicated one as we have in the larger aging population. Yep. And I think that's a almost a perfect segue. And I like the, the optimistic slant because it is true. It's like, thank God we were always able to keep adapting, which is uh, the silver lining in pretty much anything. But again, I, I really like the subtitle of your book is how the COVID crisis made Americans more financially secure. I think when a lot of people just read that, they're going to go, huh? Like, how are we more secure after COVID? Can you just kind of paint a little bit of that picture there of why you gave it that subtitle? Yeah. Well, so first I should admit that I, I it wasn't, this isn't permanently more secure. This is a, this is a particular time period, mm -hmm. uh, but in, in many ways that's continued even to uh, today in, in the middle of December, 2023. Uh, 
So two things happened. So first, COVID, big crisis, lots of people lose their job. The economy goes, looks, uh, is depression level declines for the, in the second quarter of March 2020. And yet, then really bumps, it really comes rapidly back. And there are really two things that sort of made people more financially secure. One is, we've already talked about, there were some, a lot of government policies. When you spend a lot of money and send it to a lot of people, it turns out you're going to end up with some people who are doing pretty well and you're going to get it to lots of people. But that was only one part of it. The other part was that lots and lots of people just spent less. Uh, and so if you kind of add that up, something like 50% less for six months, nine months following March 2020 meant that many, many people ended up with lots and lots of liquid savings. So just the amount of money just in the bank went way up. People used that money to pay down their credit card debt. They used it to invest. They used it to do lots of different things. But lots of wealth got created simply, simply by not taking all of those vacations. Uh, I, I like to give this example because I think it's sort of, I, I didn't, I, I cut my hair at home for several, for a year. I, you know, kind of like there was a point where sort of, okay, I could probably have gotten my hair cut at it, cut it a, but it always felt a little risky and I kind of had gotten used to it and I wasn't going into the office. And so I, you can only see me in a box <laughs> on a screen. So it just didn't matter that much. And I had two kids and try, trying to figure out just, I, it was just much more complicated. Yeah. And so I just cut my hair at home. And that meant that I wasn't going to, I wasn't paying somebody else to cut my hair, which meant I was spending, that's not that much. I don't spend that much on my haircuts, but I was just spending this, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, it, a more, <clears throat> my parents didn't come to visit their, uh, their grandkids for a year. Uh, they're elderly. That was a really costly thing. They missed some really valuable points in some really exciting times in my kids' lives, but lots of money got saved by not traveling. And so when you kind of add those two things together, kind of the government kind of keeping <clears throat> uh, keeping things from getting worse for, say, unemployed or for small business owners, and then all of that extra saving for everybody who was employed meant that there was just a lot of money and wealth in the, it, it, held by, <laughs> by households uh, at the end of, say, 2020. And the economy over the last two, several years has really just explained by having all that extra money from all of those supply chain issues, which were then causing inflation as people were chasing, oh, I want this exercise bike. Or now that I've, now that I can travel, I'm going to go to that trip to uh, that trip I didn't get to take. Uh, so chasing services that as, uh, or used cars. Uh, and what, what the extra savings meant was that when there was a problem, when your car did break down, you had the money to fix it. And so people just weren't having the financial problems that they were having before in 2019, say, for the last several years, because most people have had more liquidity and more savings. And is that what the government wanted? Because it's funny, it's almost as like a CFP, as a financial advisor, that's a dream come true. It's like, yes, people are finally saving, they're building a rainy day fund, all the things that we're always preaching. But I believe that the government was kind of saying, here's a stimulus, please, we are begging you to go spend this, go, you know, go to that restaurant, go to that small business, go to Home Depot, you know, it wasn't that the whole idea was we're not just trying to fill up, you know, deposit accounts at banks, we're trying to flush the economy with stimulus. Where we sort of, uh, <laughs> and this is more, we wanted to get money to people who were going to have financial problems, because 
there's this bad thing out there. Uh, people aren't go people like me weren't going to get their hair cut. So the person who cut my hair didn't have a job for a while. Well, we, we don't want that to cut. We don't want that to explode everything. And we want the person who owns that, uh, that barbershop to still be, you know, to the, as a small business to still be able to reopen and hire the person who's going to cut my hair. And so that requires some sort of bridge money if you want. Yeah. Um, and so it was maybe less important that it was spent right away than it might have been in a regular econ in a regular recession, say 2001, which is when a lot of uh, checks to stimulus checks first went out uh, as a way of sort of stimulating, stimulating the economy. And so now we fast forward to here we are, December 2023, and I haven't seen the latest data on, you know, like the U.S. savings rate versus consumer spending. Um, I don't know if you happen to be privy to, to the latest or just have a general sense of it that you could share with us, but it, can you tell the listeners kind of where that is and then where you forecast that perhaps for next year? And then maybe as kind of a footnote there. Is one better than the other? Like right now is if we're the government and we're looking out at the American people, are we hoping that they save more and more of their income or are we turning to say, you know, we want you to spend, I would think because the inflation still is not completely under control. We're like, don't spend so much, but w what's that look like right now? Uh -huh. Well, okay. So first just numbers and then trying to kind of think through kind of what one might want. Um, and I want to make sure I sort of say what the government wants. The government's composed of lots of people, some, uh, and different policymakers might have different views on it. And I'm not representing any of them. So just as a, uh, just uh, acknowledging that. Um, so savings rates. So after there was a big spike in savings rates. Uh, and so measuring savings is a little bit complicated, but just think of it as sort of the people were just putting a whole lot of money, the incomes went up, and they were putting a whole lot of that income into uh, into their savings. Mm -hmm. uh, and it went really high, higher than it's been for basically in recorded history in early in sort of mid 2020, uh, combination of that government support and people spending less because the difference between those two things is savings. Mm -hmm. Since then, it's actually been much, much lower. And a way to think about that is the savings rate is the amount you is the amount of sort of extra you're putting in, and people just had a huge uh, buffer, had a huge cushion of wealth. And since approximately mid, approximately the end of 2020, early 2021, people have been spending it, and they and they've been more or less sort of spending more than their overall accumulated wealth. That's sort of a little bit balanced. It's been sometimes zero, sometimes it's been, sometimes people have been on average savings positively. Uh, I think the latest number actually did bump up a little bit after having been quite low. Uh, and I don't remember the exact number, but I sort of the, the relative. But I think a general sense is that people have been spending down that extra wealth, that they mm -hmm. built up this extra wealth and they've been going on revenge travel. They've been getting the things that they wanted. Uh, and depending on the measure, and it depends on which how you're looking at it, much of that has been spent away. Uh, the wealthy have done quite well. So sort of average wealth has actually increased really substantially. That's largely just driven by a really great stock market over the last several years with some ups and downs, just to acknowledge, but also mm -hmm. a, really, a really high housing market. So asset appreciation has been really quite strong. Uh, and so if you're invested in those two things, which is 
you've had a pretty good set of years. Uh, for the median person, much of the wealth, much of that extra wealth has more or less been spent. And so what we're looking at kind of in the next year is kind of a return to normal where we no longer, where most people no longer have a lot of extra wealth and are going to have to deal with problems that maybe they didn't have to, they could sort of push aside by suspending more uh, in the last several years. Is that, if I could jump in, is that almost a good thing? Like, is that the target to eventually say, hey, now, yeah, a lot of people, middle America is going to have some struggles. And as such, inflation will slow down because they just don't have that extra dollar to spend. Is that ultimately like where we want the homeostasis where that that kind of middle is like, all right, I'm not flush with cash anymore. Now I've really got to think about where my money goes. Well, so I would wish that fewer people had financial problems. I think that's a that just a uh, on a general sure. sense, uh, even in 2019, when inflation was pretty low, uh, some of the surveys I ran, 40% of households had difficulty paying at least one bill over expense or expense in the previous year. Uh, that went way down and went down to about 32% in 2021. And now it's back about 35% or 36, pardon me, it's back to about 37%. And so it's sort of returned to kind of, there are more problems that people are having. Uh, how much of what we've seen in inflation is simply sort of more savings. Some of it is just more savings and people being willing to spend more, but a lot of it has just been supply trying to catch up with that demand. And the way that supply catches up with demand is by prices changing. Uh, so I, I'm not sure if it's sort of, we want people to be having more problems. I, I think I would, I would have liked to see uh, that many people realizing that all of that saving that they'd done during the pandemic did actually get them things that were have an emergency fund, they could have more of uh, have more of a financial buffer and be able to sort of maintain that a little bit more. And it doesn't seem like that's what's been happening. Uh, there were signs in early surveys that people were sort of focusing more on having emergency savings and having savings to buffer. Uh, it seems that that it's hard to tell because it's sort of where things are trending is a little hard to parse out. But it doesn't seem like that's where the, the the equilibrium is ending up. It looks like we're returning pretty much to where things were in 2019 in terms of sort of financial average financial problems. Okay. And then, I mean, that kind of begs the question, if we get back to kind of where we were in 2019, and then another recession strikes, maybe it's not a pandemic-related one, maybe it's a little more ordinary, if you will. Then I imagine the same people, if they're back to that same issue, now will be saying, can we get these economic in income, stimulus, unemployment, enhanced unemployment, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I, it's, I mean, it's always like this pendulum just kind of swinging here. And so I, I think the, the next big question everyone's asking that we've been talking about, everyone's gotten a good education the past couple of years in this inflation you know, the latest data just came out, you know, that it, it's been coming down. They're still not near the 2% the target that we're all accustomed to hearing about. Do you think with the Fed holding interest rates now, inflation will continue to fall through next year? Uh, so forecasts are always really hard. So I want to be really kind of, I, I want to admit that sort of, uh, so I think it's been pretty clear that inflation has sort of 
Uh, whether it's going to go from three to two is, I think, kind of th there are large debates about that. So I think Goldman Sachs in a report thinks that the hard part is done, the easy part is coming. I, I think that's not as obvious as maybe the, the, that in some senses the, the last mile could be the hardest one. Uh, but in a general sense, kind of we're within kind of a, a reasonable window for the Fed to sort of say, OK, well, we would like things to be, to be aiming towards two, but three is not much higher than uh, we were below two by more than that uh, in 2015 and in 2020, in fact, when there was actually deflation. Uh, maybe we're pretty close, and so maybe the balance of risks is is changing. It's not whether we'll actually go all the way down to two. I think that that may be a longer and slower process. Uh, although it, there is the way that at least the CPI is calculated puts a lot of weight on housing, uh, how and in particular owner imputed rents. Uh, which are basically that sort of, I own my house, that's great, so I don't pay rent to myself, but if I did, how much would I pay? And the way they try to calculate that is by sort of using some sort of combination of what of what I might pay if I was renting out my house, which is a complicated set of things. Anyway, all of that went up really sharply in 2022, but since then, rents have actually come down, have actually come down or stabilized, and it just takes a long time for that to make its way through the CPI. And so there's a general sense that there's some more infl disinflation that is likely to incur. Mm -hmm. uh, whether we get to the whether we get to two in the next year or whether it takes two years, I, I'm pretty optimistic that that things will continue to go down. Uh, but uh, I, I also want to admit that uh, uh, this has been a wacky several years, and making forecasts of what was going to happen a year a year in advance has been one of the harder things <laughs> yeah. to do. Uh, yep. Yeah. It's almost a roll of the dice. Um, so if I could have you play the role of Fed Chairman Jerome Powell, he's said that, you know, he credits a lot of the growth that we experienced, you know, pre-COVID for pretty much from the Great Recession to up to COVID to low interest rates and that that fostered such a, a strong, robust economy where money was flowing, everything was expanding. When COVID struck, or I should say after COVID, when the inflation of last year really struck and we saw those huge rate hikes, a lot of people that were around in the business in the 70s and the 80s said, we're not hiking rates to some crazy level. We're just returning them back to where they should be. Mm -hmm. What's your take on that? I mean, is this kind of more normal where they should be? Or does the Fed and does the economy as well prefer to see them go closer to rock bottom and say, okay, now we're just kind of flooding the economy with expansion, um, kind of like the, the chairman had alluded to previously. What's your take on that, on like where should rates be as a whole? So that is a very hard and very complicated question. Uh, <laughs> I'm giving I you softballs. <laughs> well, I, I don't. Want, I want to make sure I'm, 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 I'm acknowledging that, uh, partly because it depends on what you think the uh, and there are some macroeconomic technical terms: the non-accelerating rate of inflation. Uh, right? I, 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 uh, it, I, I, I apologize. I'm not remembering. Uh, not being a macroeconomic forecaster is one of the uh, things that sort of, uh, but largely it really depends on what we think of the underlying rate of growth and the underlying rate of kind of investment opportunities there are in the economy. Uh, and in some senses, that's the right way of thinking about kind of like what, what, it, what interest rates should be, that we want to have a place where when people have great ideas, 
they can borrow at a rate where that great idea gets them a really good return. Uh, and that's sort of the goal of it. And if your great idea requires zero interest rates, it probably isn't a great idea. Um, that's and, a good point. And you can think of a lot of things where sort of as uh, as interest rates have risen, uh, it turns out that uh, to use the uh, Warren Buffett, it turns out a lot of people were swimming with their clothes off because it turns out that if the difference between zero and 5% is the difference between your idea making sense or not, that the economic return there may not have been so so great. Uh, so a lot of venture capital went into things where without a obvious rate of return uh, that may, that are sort of only made sense when essentially money was free. Uh, I think, so it's not necessarily the case that we haven't, um, that, that we can't have good economic growth with higher interest rates. It's partly that sort of now you have to put a little bit more thought into what is the rate of, what is the rate of return? What can we invest in? What can we do that, that, that will actually lead to better economic growth? So yeah. I haven't quite answered your question because in some senses, I'm not sure if I know because it it requires understanding. <clears throat> it requires uh, knowing things about sort of underlying parts of the economy that in some senses are really hard. Mm -hmm. But let me, let me sort of switch it a little bit and say kind of why I'm partially optimistic. So one of the things that happened during the pandemic was this huge expansion in the number of new businesses formed. Uh, and... I thought this was, okay, so I thought this was mostly kind of a pandemic paradox, like all those savings, people are starting new businesses, this is great, but that's going to kind of end. And it's actually accelerated in 2023, sort of returned back up uh, during a time when interest rates are quite high. And the reason that's really exciting is it really does suggest that lots of people are thinking about new business ideas that they can invest in that can do new cool things and that that will cause long-term growth. And higher long-term growth supports higher interest rates, effectively. Uh, if you've got an economy that isn't going to grow, interest rates don't need to be very high because there's not really a uh, trade-off between uh, the trade-off between today and tomorrow isn't really uh, for firms for people investing isn't really worth as big a deal. Yeah, no, I think those were some great points there, and and you hear a lot about that right now with kind of the clean energy sector that. It was roaring. It was this idea that everybody wanted to get behind. And then as rates came up and financing became a little more difficult, you saw a lot of these kind of newbies that didn't really have a lot of merit maybe to their their product or service that unfortunately took a hit. So I think it's true. You know, that that maybe is the silver lining there as you start to kind of separate the, uh, the, the kind of cream from the crop, if you will. And that has some real value. I mean, just to be yeah. that if... Um... That you want, you want capital to be invested wisely where it's going to earn a really great rate of return. And if it's really hard to do that and you aren't putting much work into it and you're just chasing a trend, maybe that's not, maybe we weren't using our capital investments as wisely as we could have. Uh, yeah. yeah, no, that's, that's a great point there. And so I, I know we've covered a, a lot here and we could probably have three more talks on this. That's why I love economics is it, it, it affects everything. It impacts every aspect of life and it's always changing. Um, you know, some things stay the same and then others just uh, never seem to stop changing on us. But uh, I asked a question of a guest recently and some of my loyal listeners said, I wish you asked everybody that. So I'm going to pose this to you, Scott. If you could change one thing about the world right now, what would it be? 
Oh, that's a great question. Ooh, <laughs> one thing about the world right Could now. Could be economic or otherwise, but just with everything we've discussed. Oh. What well, comes so to I, mind? I, it, huh. One thing about the world, and I'm sorry, I, I because in some senses, I, 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 the economic of it, I think, are sort of, uh, I, I, I think actually it would probably be something about health, that that the ability to kind of live long and fruitfully, uh, is I think kind of the sort of one of those fundamental things that I think we care about, and that kind of underlies. We've been talking about uh, the demographic trends, but a lot of those are around kind of people aging and not perhaps wanting or being able to work uh and so if we had if we had better health for longer less disability that would just be really exciting and in some senses sort of the, the transitions into fewer people dying longer life expectancies things like that so uh live forever is maybe not quite the right one but <laughs> sort of just better health uh, because in some senses that's sort of a that, that that's genie wishing for more uh wishes kinds of things but just the, to allow some of the breakthroughs that we've been having in health to really spread and to allow more people to live for longer and live better live better for longer it's not just sort of living longer it's living better for longer and living more healthily for longer i think would be sort of the the thing that i think is the and spreading that to the world is, I think, even kind of, and the economic growth will follow from that. But the the thinking about kind of people's real well being is really sort of tied up in their ability to live well and long. I love it. And you heard it here first, folks. When we talk about health and wealth, we have the PhD economist letting us know you've got to take care of yourself. <laughs> and. That was spot on, Scott, and I think it's um, it's fitting. You know, we we began talking about the economy that was a symptom of a health related issue, the pandemic, the COVID nineteen pandemic, and then we finished by talking about our whole economy and longevity, and again, kind of the health there. So I think that's um, I think people really need to to keep that in mind. You know, that that health and wealth do go so hand in hand. But Scott, thank you very much for your time. This was a very insightful conversation. We might have to do a part two at some point because uh, like we say, the world's always changing. Oh, it's been a chaotic time to uh, use the uh, subtitle of your book uh, uh, <laughs> the last several years. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Yep. Thank you, Scott. And thank you everyone for tuning in to another episode of the Caderna Podcast. Wherever you're listening or watching, please subscribe, leave us a review, and I can't wait to see you next time. Take care. This podcast is intended for the general public and for informational purposes only. The show does not provide any recommendations or investment advice regarding any specific account type, service, strategy, or product, or to otherwise act in any fiduciary or other capacity. Please contact a financial professional for guidance and information that is specific to your situation. Brian Caderna does not provide tax or legal advice. Please contact your accountant or legal advisor to discuss your situation. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Park Avenue Securities, Guardian, or Caderna Financial Team, and opinions stated are their own. All investments contain risk and may lose value. Past performance is not guarantee of future results. References to specific securities, asset classes, and financial markets are for illustrative purposes only and do not constitute a solicitation, offer, or recommendation to purchase or sell a security. Brian Caderna is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS, OSJ, 300 Broadacres Drive, Suite 175, Bloomfield, New Jersey, 07003, phone number 973-244-4420.
Securities products and advisory services offered through PAS, member FINRA, SIPC. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Hederna Financial Team is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. California Insurance License Number 0K04194.